0: Welcome to Across the Pond, a Christian commentary on the way of Jesus in the world today with the co-founders of Red Letter Christians, Dr. Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. Red Letter Christians gets its name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red, and we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. Some episodes of this podcast have been adapted from our radio show, Across the Pond, which airs on Sunday afternoons in the UK on Premier Radio. Thank you for listening. Let's jump into this week's episode with Shane Claiborne.
1: Hello, this is Shane Claiborne, and the name of the show is Across the Pond. Thank you for joining me. I'm over here in the United States, and uh, that's why we call it Across the Pond. There's folks that are listening there in the UK and all over the world, as I think all of us are looking at the world and how broken it is. The war happening in Ukraine, the loss of lives uh, in our streets, um, and there's a lot of folks that are wondering what the Christian faith has to offer this broken world. And sometimes, you know, the Christians that I grew up with were very good at promising people that there's life after death, but we haven't always been as good at talking about life before death. And the fact that the gospel is not just a way of escaping this world, but hopefully becomes a force For transforming this world from what it is into what God wants it to be. And so I I have the opportunity to uh, invite uh, friends and folks that I uh, just get real excited to talk to. And sometimes I don't, I need an excuse. And and this show is an excuse. And I'm so excited about uh, our guest today. Uh, Her name is Jamila Hodge, uh, that uh, most of us who know her call her Jami, and she is an incredible woman of faith. She's got a whole history that we'll get into a little bit, uh, many years as a prosecutor uh, in our criminal justice system. And now, for just six months, she has been the executive director of Equal Justice USA. So thanks for joining me, Jami. It's great to see you. Thank you, Shane. It really is an honor to
2: be here and looking forward to our conversation.
1: Well, I, I want to jump in. We, we've had a couple of folks, that Sam and Demetrius and others that I've talked to from EJUSA, and we're you know partners between Red Letter Christians and EJUSA trying to figure out what good we can do together. But before we get into all that, uh, for folks that don't know you, uh, your faith really... Uh, fuels a lot of what you're doing right now. And I, I remember you saying that you, um, there's a lot of things you kind of feel like you've got to put your faith on the side and this is your job, you know, and you don't really talk about faith much, but this, this work that you're doing now, you get to be all who you are, right? And, and uh, talk a little bit about your, your own story though, and how you came to faith.
2: Yeah. Um. So I, um, I grew up in the church, you know, I have uh two parents who um, I, I was pretty young. Actually, I can remember, uh, you know, being probably around five or six. I remember my mom being baptized um, and, you know, and then my dad and and then really um, she told me and this is she my mom passed about a little over a year ago. So mm. this, this feels pretty special. But um, I think she said being pregnant, I'm her first, you know, with me was really when she felt how much she needed God in her life. And she said Mm -hmm. that while she carried me, she read the Bible like through, and it was the first time she really dug into the scripture. And I think it was just becoming a mom and the responsibility of carrying a soul. And she would always say to the three of us, Um, that we're not hers, you know, that, Mm. you know, God has just allowed her uh, to be our mother to raise us, but that we're his and that she saw the responsibility of raising three never dying souls as an Mm. important one. And so her, her example certainly is one that I've had, you know, had growing up. But, you know, I think for anyone who's grown up in a church environment, it really takes you walking out your own life. And often it is the things that you face that, you know, there aren't answers for before your faith separates from that of your parents and really becomes your own. Mm. And so I think we just, we we went through a number of things as a family. My father was the victim of a robbery that left him with a severe close-hand injury when I was in high school. And um, just all the impacts of it, you know, just, you know, economically, emotionally, physically, and, um, you know, having to often, like, wonder, like, how we almost lost our home, you know, how were, like, basic needs going to be met, and there were many times, you know, my mom would just be clear, like, I don't have the answer. I don't have what we need. Like, mm. you, you, we have to go to God. You got to pray. You know, if you need this for school. You got to pray, you know. And so I think, you know, anytime you're going through tragedy and you really have to rely on your faith and, and to see the answers to those prayers, see God provide, you know, see him use people who would just show up, you know, to mm. help us and be there for us. And so experiences like that are really those that help me not just rely on a faith of parents, but develop my own. And it is it is so refreshing to be in a position now, where um, our platform is so inviting to everyone, and for and invites people to bring all of themselves That's and. Right that's just not, it's, it's not present in so much of the social justice movement spaces. And so uh, it, it, I, I, I just feel incredibly blessed to be here at Equal Justice USA and to have the opportunity to use this organization and lead this amazing team to have impact in the world.
1: Mm, mm. And we're all blessed to have you there. And, uh, you know, some parts of the church are, seem to be better equipped with engaging injustices and, you know, especially like systemic injustice and racism. So of course, the historic black church has been, you know, a force for that throughout our, our history as a country. Um, but then there's other sort of, Streams of faith that have a real hard time with, you know, connecting that. So, it, like, salvation is personal, and, you know, Jesus is your personal savior, but it doesn't really affect. Um, you know bigger systems of justice and it's I mean it's kind of why we've got this culture war over uh, you know what people would say critical race theory, which just kind of be is, is I think like a shiny object to avoid talking about what we really need to be talking about. but right what, what about you? like was was your the, the church you grew up in and that shaped you was was there um, kind of a, a way of thinking about justice that was a part of that? That like theology and practice.
2: That's a great question. So the so no, the the church I grew up in is um, Church of Christ, which um, can be uh, I would say very very sort of Bible centered, um, but could can be kind of strict. You know, is probably the best way to to refer to my upbringing. Um, and I have pretty much always been raised in mixed, like churches have always been mixed, like in terms of um, ethnicity and race. Um, and I have had opportunities, you know, where like in law school, I attended a predominantly Black church, you know, and of course, you know, when that's the case, then you do, you, there's more of an sort of conversation and embracing of the realities of what it means to be Black in this country that, you know, come out in both the sermons and in how we, you know, interact with each other. Um, But other than that one experience, most of the places of worship where I've been have been mixed. I, I, am aware and have visited some amazing um, uh, places of worship, and there's a number of them here locally, that are more of the tradition of um, sort of liberation theology. And um, yeah, but that but it hasn't been my upbringing, which also might explain why this feels new to me at Mm. Equal Justice USA, to be in a place where my faith isn't separate from my work and that I'm showing up as my whole self in a way I haven't felt I've been able to do before. Um, Maybe because I I haven't had that sort of, that um, upbringing in a faith tradition that embraces the social justice movement.
1: Mm. And, uh, that's that's beautiful and i i think of um you know we're all kind of growing i love that scripture that says we work out our salvation with fear yes. and trembling you know it's it's not about a moment it's a it's sort of a movement of being shaped and formed by the spirit and we're, yes. the, the other scripture says we're seeing through a glass dimly you know we're kind of getting better yeah. clear vision clear vision uh through the help of the spirit and each other you know i think yes. like relationships yes. help us have clear vision um it seems like a lot of that has happened for you for for me too on a lot of these justice issues yeah like the death penalty i was for the death penalty uh a big chunk of my life and had all the scriptures that i used to um to defend the death penalty the way i thought thought about a lot of things guns and Criminal justice was was uh, very diff- different from yeah. how I think about it now, but it gives me a little bit of grace and patience when I'm talking to someone who has some of those arguments. They're familiar because I use them, you know. Yeah. I mean, and and for you, you I mean, you spent many years as a prosecutor. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about how that evolution, you know, it's a, there's a spiritual evolution, but there's kind of also this kind of justice evolution yes. right? of how you think about criminal justice. So. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. No, that, and I, that piece for me is really rooted in a lack of knowledge of our history, you know? So I feel like the, my journey from being a prosecutor I was a prosecutor for 12 years in the DC area um, to working outside the system and, you know, as a TA provider who was trying to fix what was wrong with the system, reform the system to now being at an organization that fully understands that we need solutions to violence that are outside of the system. Um, A large part of that journey has been rooted in my own growing understanding of our history. And it's the history that's not taught, you know? So um, I grew up in Detroit and, you know, had seen enough, Police interactions, you know, with my brother and father, and you know, had cousins who were incarcerated um, well before I became a prosecutor, and then had my own brother um, end up spending some time incarcerated behind a substance use disorder. That I, you know, I, I think I always, and, and we also were kind of, you know, had the talk, you know, the talk that black parents talk about with their children, so that. Um, you know we were careful when we saw police officers or we felt you know more as opposed to you know some families you see police and it's like officer friendly and they're there to serve you protect you you know we it's definitely raised to just be careful and be a little fearful um and so i went into the role kind of you know it, I was actually reluctant, even when it was suggested to me by um, a mentor, you know, to I, I knew I went to law school to help people. I wasn't sure what that meant. I was working at a firm for a few years and I just knew this wasn't where I was supposed to be, but I didn't know how to get to what was the next thing. And so it was when it was originally suggested, I was, I, you know, it was just like, well, how, how is that helping people? I thought of prosecutors as just, um, they help get people sent to prison, like that's their job. Mm. And particularly who's sent to prison disproportionately are black people. So I didn't initially see how how could I help people in that role And um, it was through like getting a chance, he he introduced me to some young prosecutors who were in the office, black prosecutors, and to learn about things like diversion, um, problem solving courts, that there were these other options that prosecutors have that weren't just incarcerate someone. And I also knew that Mm -hmm. um, if you talk about who holds power in the system, prosecutors often hold more power than even judges, because if they charge a case with a mandatory minimum and they get that conviction, there is nothing the judge can do. By law, they are required to sentence that person to that mandatory time. And i also don't think people realize how much power prosecutors have to keep things out of the system. They dismiss, they can, if they see whether they don't think the case is worthy to be brought into the system or because they see that something was done wrong by the police officers at the scene, rights were violated, they can fix that by like not bringing the case in or by dismissing a case. So there's a lot of power in the role. I also realized that the people who get the benefit of those dismissals or diversion or problem-solving courts often are not necessarily the ones who look like me. And so I thought, you know, eventually I concluded to be a power holder who understood, who came Mm. in kind of skeptical, not just rah-rah, I'm here to you know, serve to, you know, bought in fully into the public safety sort of mindset, but come in skeptical and wanting to make sure the power is being used fairly um, was how I approached it. Mm. I am always clear with people that I was not a public defender in a prosecutor's office. I was prosecuting people. Yeah. That was what the job was and that it didn't take long to realize that those other options, diversion and drug courts or Veterans courts Or, you know, mental health courts often didn't exist once you got beyond misdemeanors. And so when you got to more serious cases, those options weren't usually there. And, and so I always acknowledge that I still contributed to a lot of harm in that role, you know, coming in eyes open, you still become a cog in a wheel of a system that was set up to do what it does. And, For me, a big part of the journey was I came in thinking the system was broken, that I wanted to be a person who was trying to fix it. When I had the opportunity to leave and really learn our history and understand that since the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, we carved out a huge exception for the control and oppression of the formerly enslaved, except as punishment for crime. And that is what the system has been set up to do. Then I realized, oh, it's not broken. It's doing exactly as it was intended to do. And that requires something different of us. We can't just tinker and fix something when the foundation of it is racial oppression. It requires us to take a radically different approach, which is building solutions and building responses on a foundation of healing, of repair, of love, of the things that we know will actually create the world that we want to live in.
1: Oh, I know that's right. We're getting into it today, (laughs) y'all. The system isn't broken, it's fixed. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do, and slavery did not end, it evolved. And uh, if if you're just tuning in, uh, my name is Shane Claiborne, and this show is Across the Pond. Our special guest today is Jami Jamila Hodge, the executive director of um, Equal Justice USA. I want to talk about that work in a minute, but as you were sharing, uh, as a former prosecutor, I thought of uh, Larry Krasner, who is our district attorney in Philadelphia, and for folks listening in other countries this is really the highest prosecutor office in the city. Um, and. Larry was a defense attorney, kind of a legendary um, civil rights attorney. In fact, I got to know him, Johnny, from uh, going to jail for justice, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> fight, fighting anti-homeless laws, and you know things uh-huh. like that. And Larry became our defense attorney. He would come yes. to our, you know, pro bono, never took a dollar from us, would defend us in court, and we won many times. He's a great yeah. lawyer. So I was stunned a few years ago when he, call, you know, <laughs> called me and told me he's running for DA for the, and in the the newspapers, he won, you know, with a landslide yes. and yes. the newspaper said, the Philly newspaper said, this is how fed up Philadelphians are with the criminal justice system. They just elected a defense attorney to the highest prosecutor's office. Yes, And, and his whole, his whole platform was to flip the tables, was yes. to know, redefine the uh, idea of uh, the district attorney. And so, you know, he ended cash bail. um, He ended stop and frisk. He ended a lot of the policies that were, you know, about racial profiling and discriminating based on, you know, financial resources. He's against the death penalty. So he's not going to bring any death penalty cases. And, you know, even though Pennsylvania still has it, most of those, many of those cases come out of Philly. So, I mean, totally. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) And and he's very unpopular. I mean, as he as he got more deeply involved, as you said, you know, kind of in the system, he saw how complicit the system is in defending those within it. Right. So I mean, even in cases of clear police abuse in Philadelphia, we filed cases with 10 eyewitnesses and they come back unfounded. And they said, unless you have it on video, we're not even considering it. You're like, really, we have a dozen people that see this police officer abusing this person. In one case, we even had a broken limb of a child that, Mm. you know, so you're going, it's outrageous, right? And Larry, went. he found a file, that was the do not call list. I don't know if you saw Mm. that. That was these were police who had baggage, so you didn't yeah. want to call them to the stand because that would get yeah. exposed. Cops with a criminal record, and he got death threats over that, you know. Yeah. So all that to say, like you're, you know, there, there's something happening in our country, yes. right? And people are reimagining things. And there's some folks. I mean, I think clearly a young generation that mm. is very aware of all of this broken, you know, this messed up system, and they want to throw it out. They're going like, hey. The Electoral College, like, let's just say every vote matters. Whoever wins the most votes wins the election. Yes. Like the other things yeah. like policing, like this is not working. Yes. And I remember, um, you know, in when Obama had the task force around policing, you yeah. wanted, you know, there, there might be some new imagination, a new emergency response team that are unarmed social workers trained in de-escalation trained in mental health and addiction so you have imagination and I want to some of the work you're doing with EJUSA USA is all about that talk a little bit about how you're navigating this kind of reckoning moment uh and and what EJUSA USA is doing because you're nuanced you're building collaborations with conservatives and progressives and
2: yes yeah so um I think, you know, I think we were, I think Larry Krasner and so many of the other prosecutors who've been elected on these platforms of change are just one example of um, a reckoning. The country began before George Floyd's murder, but I think was certainly exacerbated by his murder. But we, you know, as a country have about 4% of the world's population, but more than 20% of the world's incarcerated population. We're number one in the world in terms of the most incarcerated place. Um, And yet we are not the most safe. And so I think there, even before these, the sort of uprisings in 2020 happened, there was already some bipartisan really effort because of recognition of the cost the system is taking and that it wasn't producing the safety that that it's promised. And then with George Floyd's murder, I think it really opened the world's eyes to that this isn't just a cost issue or a safety issue, but this is a white supremacy racism issue and that that these things are intertwined, that we don't solve these issues without reckoning with racial injustice. And so I do think, though, what has come out of this is that we are now divided and probably the most divided we've ever been, you know, as a society. Um, people are in their echo chambers, they're in their corners, and there's a demonization of anyone who doesn't agree, who thinks something differently. And again, it is why I feel so blessed to be here, because this is one of the few places I've come across that is very intentional in saying, no, we we reject that. We believe, you know, at, at our core, we have more in common than we do that separates us And that the kind of change that we need in the world is going to take all of us. It's not going to happen in silos. It's not going to happen unless we partner and come together to achieve the kind of change we need. And so I think at the heart of our work is a recognition that the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution and should be closest to the power. And so, so much of our work is really grounded in those community-based grassroots solutions that have been happening. I mean, if you think about, I mentioned just my own upbringing, if if it's kind of been inherent, particularly in Black communities, given our history, especially if you understand the history of policing, that it really evolved out of slave patrols, that there's been a distrust, a historical trauma that's been carried over. And when you think about that, that there has still been some kind of response happening when violence happens, you know? Mm-hmm. It's maybe not always calling the police. And in fact, there's data that shows that 50% of violent crimes are not even reported. So they're addressed. They're just addressed differently. And it's yeah. basically finding out, well, how are they being addressed? And what are the, the what are the folks on the ground who, you know, the aunties who open their door, who show up every time uh, a shooting happens and they come and they, they help with the needs of the family and they help, like, how do we deescalate and make sure something else doesn't happen? How do we resource what has already been happening outside the system? How do we elevate it? How do we give what it needs so that it becomes a more primary way we respond as opposed to relying on a system that we know isn't working. It's not mm. making us safer. It's not respond, you know, stopping violence. So, mm.
0: um,
2: and, and a big part of our work is supporting those efforts, you know, yeah. capacity building for those smaller grassroots organizations, helping them access funding, helping them build out their um, infrastructure so that they can do more.
1: Yeah. And boy, I wish we had another half hour. We might do it again soon. Uh, but but uh, as we close, t- talk a little bit about where we start. You know, you and I were just together in D.C. around the uh, idea of, of doing some truth telling and some yes. rep- reparations work. But before we get to the reparations, there's some work to do. And I know you've done Uh, a lot of different things on the ground as far as just trying to listen to the community. So maybe in the last minute, just give us a sense of where someone can start and maybe even how they follow some of your work.
2: Yeah, um, well, definitely. Please check out our website ejusa.org. You know, follow us on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter um, just to stay up to up uh, stay b- up on the work we're doing. But I think we could start with the, the radical truth telling and the listening. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my own journey was so deeply informed by actually learning the history. Um, yeah. We know there's an attack on that right now, but we have to. If we understand our history, it gives us a chance to better not repeat the things we don't want to repeat and. To take those lessons. Um, and it, that requires also coming together. We got to be able to listen to each other and pull down those silos.
1: Yeah. And boy, this is, this is gone quick. Y'all it's gone quick, but our guest has been Jami Jamila Hodge, uh, from the equal justice USA movement. And, uh, the truth will set us free. So it was a good word to start with truth telling. And, um, um, as we close, just uh, know that there is something happening in the world. And really the question right now is what role will Christians, will the church play in bringing about that social change? Thanks for joining us. This is Across the Pond.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about Red Letter Christians, please visit redletterchristians.org for resources, upcoming events, and to connect with other people who are passionate about Jesus and justice. You can follow Shane Cleborn and Red Letter Christians on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like to support our work with a one-time gift or by becoming a monthly sustainer of the movement, please visit our website and click on the red donate button. Thank you for tuning in.